Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Excited to have you guys, uh, especially if you're new. If this is your first week, you have jumped into one of the most daunting books of the Bible, if that's true for you. Uh, we are working our way uh, through the book of Daniel this fall. Uh, which is one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible, uh, one of the most complex books of the Bible, uh, and yet in terms of its very message, one of the most simplistic books of the Bible at the same time. And so uh, a week ago, we experienced a shift uh, in our series through the book of, po- uh, of Daniel. Uh, for the, the first six weeks, we lived in the land of narrative. Uh, and so we worked our way through one episode after another involving Daniel and his friends, stories of courage, stories of trust in the sovereign God of the Bible in the midst of a pagan wasteland. And last week, we moved from the world of narrative into the land of the apocalyptic. We essentially, according to one commentator, went from storytelling to movie watching. So the second half of Daniel is very visual. It's a big screen zombie apocalypse of sort. Sort, she might say. So if you're a visual person, the second half of this book should be a little more intriguing to you. And so I mentioned last week that with this shift, there's got to be a shift in our approach to interpretation. When you get into apocalyptic literature, especially as it pertains to the Bible, it's critical to keep a few things in mind. Number one, when we talk about apocalyptic literature, we're talking about an unveiling, a peeling back of, of the curtain to see the great and powerful Oz, the king his throne, his kingdom, and his ultimate victory over evil. And so if you walk away from the second half of this series without having gotten an eyeful of the king and his glory, you've completely missed it. Number two, because apocalyptic literature is visual, it typically involves unusual imagery, uh, evil depicted in grotesque terms or images. We saw that last week with the four beasts coming up out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, It's full of metaphor and simile, this particular genre. So the danger comes when we attempt to nail down every minute, sordid detail. It's kind of like a parable in that way. You can press a parable too much and miss the big idea altogether. Number three, apocalyptic literature is meant to bring comfort and hope to the broken, to the hurting, to the oppressed. If you can't relate to the idea that the world is not as it should be, you're not going to get a whole lot out of the second half of this book of the Bible. It's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. Daniel chapters 7 through 12 are for those who know the reality of what it means to live in a fallen, broken world, a world filled with evil and pain and sadness. If you know something of that imperfect world, then the rest of this series has much to say uh, and much to offer you. And then lastly, number four, Apocalyptic literature does look to the future, which makes sense if the present tense world as we know it is not as it should be, right? But we have to be cautious not to impulsively read the text into our own present day circumstances. And also we have to be cautious not to impulsively jump to the second coming of Christ. There there are gospel implications throughout the remaining chapters of the book of Daniel, no doubt about it. We'll see that this morning. There's much to say about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus And so there must be a shift in our approach to interpretation, but the message remains the same. Despite appearances, God is in control. I've said this a dozen times, if not more, and I'll say it again probably a dozen times this morning. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God shall endure forever. Okay, that's the message of the book of Daniel. I shared this quote last week, and I'll share it again. Daniel Block, in his commentary, sums up the purpose of apocalyptic literature really well. He says this, 
He says, the intention of apocalyptic is not to chart out God's plan for the future so future generations may draw up calendars, but to assure the present generation that perhaps contrary to appearance, God is still on the throne and that the future is firmly in his hands. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this week's unveiling. And, and, and let's expect God to move in our hearts this morning as we do so, as we get a glimpse of the king seated on his throne in all of his glory. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, take that Bible with you for free. Church's gift to you. That would excite us very much. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in, and we'll get to work. God, I would imagine that in a room of this size, this number of people, that there are many who come in this morning feeling like there is a ceiling to their prayers, that uh, maybe uh, there's even a question of whether their prayers are reaching you at all. Uh, There are questions of whether or not you are in control of the narrative, whether it be the uh, narrative of human history at large or uh, the narrative involving our particular uh, lives. God, I would imagine there are others who come in and don't question your sovereignty at all, but question whether or not you care, uh, whether uh, you love us, whether you are for us, whether you are truly good. And so I pray that by way of Daniel chapter 8, you would bring us uh, out of the ditches of those false narratives and back onto the path of truth, that you would help us to see you for who you truly are, to see the gospel in all of its beauty, and to walk out comforted and encouraged, knowing that there is a God who is in control and who deeply cares for us. Father, would you do that by the power of your spirit? In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, let me start off with where we're going this morning, and this may sound a little odd to you, because I thought it was odd as I really began to put the pieces together. This morning, we're going to talk about Hanukkah. Now, my guess is that when you just opened your Bible and you saw the subtitle, Daniel's Vision of the Ram and the Goat, your, your mind probably did not automatically go to, oh yeah, of course, Hanukkah. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. It makes perfect sense. But This chapter of the Bible actually provides the historical background for that very holiday. The deliverance of the Jews from an evil regime uh, along with the restoration of the temple. That's what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 8. For all of you friends lovers out there, I thought about seeing if I could rent a holiday armadillo costume like Ross and just kind of unpack this morning's passage, but my wife advised me otherwise, so I did not do that. But it doesn't make the story any less interesting even as I stand here in my boring button-up, it, it strangely, this story points us to the beauty of the gospel, Daniel chapter 8, believe it or not. And so my hope this morning is the same hope that I have every single Sunday when we gather in this place, that you would be encouraged in the gospel, that, that you would see with great clarity the beauty of the person and work of Jesus. And so here we go, without further ado, Daniel chapter 8, Hanukkah and the gospel. You ready? Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. 
So if you recall last week, we looked at Daniel's vision of the four beasts rising up out of the sea in chapter 7. That particular dream took place in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign as the king of the Babylonian Empire. Chapter 8 takes place two years later in the third year of the reign of that same king. Daniel experiences another vision, another, another dream of sorts. In the vision, he finds himself in Susa, which is the, the capital of the Persian Empire, the very empire that would take down King Belshazzar and the Babylonians. Remember Daniel chapter 5, the writing on the wall? So this vision is a picture of something that takes place in the not-so-distant future. This is, this is not so much a cry to look far out in, in the reaches of human history toward the end of days. Remember the vision in chapter 7 includes these four beasts that represent four empires. You have the, the majestic lion with eagle's wings representing Babylon. You have the ferocious bear representing Medo-Persia. You have the speedy, agile leopard representing Greece. And you have the dreadfully terrifying beast that's unlike all the others representing Rome. Well, this chapter, chapter 8, zooms in on the second and third of those beasts, the second and third of those empires, Medo-Persia and Greece. Daniel sees himself standing by a canal, and we're told, verse 3, I raised my, my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. This two-horned ram represents Medo-Persia. We know that because verse 20 actually tells us so. And this ram has one horn that's higher than the other. It sounds a lot like the bear in chapter 7 that's raised up on one side, right? The fact that one horn was higher than the other makes sense because in the Medo-Persian empire, the Persians were unquestionably stronger than the Medes. We know that this empire went on a conquering rampage to the west. Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor, even parts of Europe were conquered by the Persians. To the north, Armenia and, and the area around the Caspian Sea. To the south, Egypt and Ethiopia. There, there's no question that the Medo-Persian Empire was a powerhouse of greatness and glory. But that greatness would eventually come to an end. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. The male goat represents Greece. We know that because verse 21 tells us so. Verse 21 also tells us that the great horn between its eyes represents the first king. The first king of Greece was none other than Alexander the Great, a man who conquered the known world of his day by the age of 32. It was quite speedy, his conquest, which is why we get this language of the goat crossing the earth without even touching the ground. It's how fast it moves, similar to the leopard in chapter seven, which also represents Greece. You with me? You need to take a sip of coffee real quick before we keep going. Verse six, he came to the ram with the two horns, this goat did, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So, so there you have the description of the conquest itself. Very simply put, the Greeks conquering the Persians. Verse 8, Then the goat became exceedingly great, 
But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. We talked about this last week. We know that Alexander the Great's empire was divided in four parts after his death. The breaking of the great horn, Alexander himself, followed by the division of his kingdom into four smaller kingdoms. The Bible's starting to connect, right? Even the book of Daniel, chapter by chapter. Verse 9, and out of one of them, out of one of these four kingdoms came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So out of these four smaller kingdoms now arises a king, a king who starts out small and grows in power over the course of his reign. Every scholar and commentator I read this week, and I read a lot of them, believe me, because this is a very confusing chapter of the Bible, identifies this king as a man by the name of Antiochus IV, who went on to name himself to declare himself to be Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes meaning God manifest. Talk about egotistical, right? Epiphanes, that's a cool name. Hey, where, where'd you get that name? Where did that come from? Oh, no big deal. It means God manifest. It means God clothed in, in flesh. When you look at me, that's what you think of, right? I mean, it, it's kind of crazy. The, this man conquered Egypt to the south, we know. Persia and Armenia to the east, and most importantly, according to verse 9, the glorious land, meaning the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of God's people. That, that little piece of information, those three words, the glorious land, in verse 9, is why he gets so much press here in Daniel chapter 8. It goes on to say in verse 10, it grew great, this tiny horn, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. According to Daniel's vision... This horn, representing the evil king Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to wage war with the very host of heaven. Verse 24 makes clear that this includes, no doubt, the destruction of God's people for sure. But we're also talking about a spiritual war, good versus evil. We, we know that Antiochus Epiphanes did some unbelievably wicked things. We know, according to historians, that he massacred tens of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem. We know that he set up an altar to Zeus in the Jerusalem temple and then sacrificed a pig on that very altar, an animal that would have been considered unclean to the Jews. We know that he put an end to the offering of sacrifices to Israel's God based on the Mosaic law. And we know that he established a forceful paganization program, an attempt to destroy Israel's faith. Listen to this quote from theologian and historian Emil Schurer as it pertains to Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did to the people of Israel, it says, quote, this scheme, this paganization program called for the abolition of the temple cult and of the observance of the law and the substitution of pagan cults. The observance of all Jewish ordinances, in particular those relating to the Sabbath and circumcision, was prohibited on pain of death. Let me just stop there. So if we were to move that to present day, you would all of a sudden be persecuted for receiving communion later on in this very service. If we were to attempt to baptize someone in the coming weeks, there would be great persecution to come for attempting to do so. It goes on to say, 
In every town in Judea, sacrifice was to be offered to the heathen gods. Overseers were sent everywhere to see that this royal command was carried out. Where the people did not comply willingly, they were obliged to do so by force. Once a month, a check was made, and whoever was found with a scroll of the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, or had had a child circumcised, well, they were put to death. So this is a context in which you die for opening your Bible to have a quiet time. This is evil in its most grotesque form. And this isn't just a battle between an egotistical tyrant who thinks that he's God clothed in flesh and the people of God. This is a war between this evil uh, human ruler and God himself, the prince of the host, as verse 11 says. This is a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Verse 13 Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Daniel hears an an angel asking the very question that we all ask when we're faced with hardship or pain. How long is this going to last? I mean, how long is this violence and persecution toward God and his people going to last? How long is the very temple of God going to remain in the hands of pagans? Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. I'm going to be honest. I don't know what that means. Brilliant scholars and theologians all disagree as to what that means. Is that a literal 2300? Is that a symbolic 2300? We just don't know. You can make your assumptions. You can pull out your charts and graphs and try to figure out a place in human history where that all makes sense. And there are people who have attempted to do it. And they don't sound crazy when they do. And then the symbolic guys who go, nah, it's not an actual number. It really is symbolic. They make a whole lot of sense too. So I'm not going to land on a, in a particular spot there as it pertains to that. What I do want to make clear, though, is where most scholars agree is that this language, no matter where you land, communicates an end to the suffering, okay? This is God's way of saying this won't last forever, that we don't have the language of decades and centuries, but rather evenings and mornings. In other words, this too shall pass. The sanctuary will be restored, which is where Hanukkah comes into play. I know you've all been wondering, how is he going to connect those dots? Where's the holiday armadillo going to come out to play this morning? Well, here it is. We know, according to historians, that the temple was restored in 164 BC, about 150 years before Jesus stepped onto the scene of human history. A man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, never thought I would say that name in a sermon, led a revolt against the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews took back the city of Jerusalem They cleansed the temple, they rebuilt the altar, and they dedicated it to the Lord. The word Hanukkah comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to dedicate. So that's the story behind Hanukkah. More to come on that in just a moment. But here's the deal. For Daniel, Daniel doesn't know all of this. In the midst of this dream, he's got no idea what's going on, which is why we're told in verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand this vision. So you have God speaking in a human voice, most scholars agree, to the angel Gabriel, telling Gabriel to help Daniel understand what in the world this vision actually means. Verse 17, so 
he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, most scholars, just to be very clear here, agree that this language, uh, the, the time of the end, doesn't mean the end of time. It doesn't mean the second coming of Christ. Rather, most scholars agree that this is talking about the end of the persecution described in the very vision itself, which makes sense because this chapter is rooted in a particular time in human history. We'll see that again in just a moment. Now the angel is going to go on to explain everything to Daniel, who, again, doesn't know what we know. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Okay, so the, the purpose of these verses is basically to affirm that your pastor is not crazy, Okay. The ram really does represent Medo-Persia. The goat really does represent Greece. The great horn of the goat really does represent the first king of Greece, which happens to be Alexander the Great. And the four horns that replace the great horn really do represent four kingdoms that arise after Alexander's death. So I I promise you I'm not trying to read too much into this passage. The Bible actually affirms that this chapter is firmly rooted in a particular time in human history. A time in which an evil tyrant really would rise up out of one of those four kingdoms. About this tyrant, verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Remember the bloodbath. Tens of thousands in Jerusalem slaughtered at the hands of Antioch's Epiphanes. Verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. You can't be more full of yourself, more great in your own mind, than to give yourself the name God Manifest, right? And we're told without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That is God himself. This is a war against the God of the universe. Remember, Antiochus desecrated God's temple. He built an altar to Zeus within that temple. He prohibited God's people from offering sacrifices to God. And he even declared himself to be God. But look at the last part of verse 25. Very nonchalant, very casually, we get these words. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. A wicked king is going to wage war against the God of Israel. He's going to slaughter tens of thousands of God's people. He's going to desecrate God's temple. He's going to rob God of the sacrifices due him. And he's going to rob God of his very title. And by the way, nonchalantly, God's going to break him. This man will lose in the end. It's pretty wild. According to historians, we know that Antiochus Epiphanes died a sudden early death the same year the temple was restored. He, he later 
uh, came to be referred to not as Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest, but rather Antiochus Epimenes, which means maniac or looney tune. You have a man who desired to be remembered as God in human flesh, who was remembered by those around him in the wake of his reign of terror as a crazy man. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. I'll say it again, but the kingdom of God shall endure forever. Evil comes and evil goes, but the goodness of God shall endure forever. The angel goes on to say to Daniel, Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. In other words, this isn't going to come true overnight. Um, You're going to want to protect this truth. You're going to want to preserve it because it's going to be the means by which people, uh, your uh, very uh, people to come after you, your brothers and sisters, your siblings uh, of Israel are going to persevere in the midst of this great evil and persecution. Verse 27 The final verse of chapter 8. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Similar to the end of of chapter 7, Daniel sobered here. He's sobered by what he sees. He's just been clued into the fact that his future Israelite brothers and sisters will indeed suffer greatly. He doesn't get the privilege of being on the other side of the person and work of Jesus like we do which is why he doesn't fully understand what he's seen. We, however, get to look back on Daniel chapter 8 through the lens of the gospel, which is what I want to do for just a couple of minutes. Where, where do we see the gospel connectors in this morning's passage? Well, let me just give you a few. Antiochus Epiphanes declared himself to be God manifest, God clothed in flesh, yet he died being declared by the masses to be nothing more than a maniac. Meanwhile, Jesus truly was and is God manifest, God clothed in flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't live the the wicked life of a cruel dictator. He lived a perfect, sinless life, the life that you and I could never live, a life of goodness and righteousness. He died the death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. I entitled this sermon, The Temple, the Light, and the Sacrifice. And here's why. Because we don't just see traces of Jesus in that title, God Manifest. We also see traces of Jesus in in the following three ways. We know that, number one, uh, Jesus is the true temple. As the brick and mortar temple of Jerusalem was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, So the true temple, Jesus himself, was desecrated and destroyed on our behalf. When Jesus in the Gospels overturns the table in the temple because they've turned it into a place of business, uh, he declares this in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. He says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? What are you, crazy? But he was speaking, we're told, about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That Jesus was the truly desecrated temple, enduring the shame and agony of the cross so that we might become temples of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, Jesus is the true light. 
Even the imagery associated with Hanukkah points to the gospel, strangely enough. Hanukkah is the festival of lights, right? Which includes the lighting of the menorah. We know that Jesus is the light of the world. John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by his grace, we have been declared to now be the light of the world. And we get the privilege of pointing a dark, hopeless world to the true light, Jesus Christ himself. And finally, not only is Jesus the true temple and the true light, but he's also the true sacrifice. We know that this man, Judas Maccabeus, the great deliverer of the Jews in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, was able to reestablish the morning and evening sacrifices in the temple. What do we know about Jesus? We know that Jesus didn't reestablish the sacrificial system at all, did he? He abolished it. He did away with it. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. That the gospel tells us that the old sacrificial system has been done away with and replaced with Jesus' perfect sinless sacrifice and sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. Going back to last week, we can stop trying to make our case before God. We can lay down the evidences of our self-wrought righteousness There is no exhibit A and exhibit B and exhibit C and exhibit D to be presented before the cosmic judge of the universe. There's only exhibit A, namely the blood of Jesus, and there is no exhibit B. That's what the gospel declares. So that any sacrifice we now offer as Christians is a sacrifice not of merit, but a sacrifice of praise. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. That we see in Daniel chapter 8. Traces of the gospel everywhere. Jesus is truly God manifest. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true sacrifice. Jesus is the greater Judas Maccabeus. That's crazy and weird. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Bible is a literary masterpiece. You get that, don't you? It's not just a bunch of piecemealed stories meant to teach us moralistic tales. It's not a book of hero after hero after hero. It's a book that paints a picture of one glorious hero, Jesus Christ himself. And he's tattooed all over the pages of scripture from Genesis 1 to the very end of the book of Revelation and everything in between. In light of that reality... We must ask the question that we've asked every single week practically of this series, which is this. So what? I mean, what are we to take away from Daniel chapter 8? I mean, this is a historically heavy chapter of the Bible, is it not? Did you think you were going to come in and get a history lesson this morning? I felt like I needed a little bit of a whiteboard to kind of walk us through that one. What can we take away? What is meant for us as we walk away this morning from this chapter of the Bible? Well, again... I've said it before, and it won't be the last time I say it. Number one, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God shall endure forever. We see it in every chapter of this book of the Bible, but particularly in Daniel chapter 8. The ram seems invincible until it's crushed by the goat. 
And the goat seems invincible with its glorious horn until, until it's crushed, until it's broken. As one commentator puts it, think about this. Alexander the Great, one of the most powerful men in human history, is nothing more than a mere footnote in Daniel chapter 8. There, there is an ebb and flow to all earthly kingdoms. That's the pattern of, pattern of human history. But, but that's not so with God's kingdom. I love this quote from Ian Dugan. He says this. No matter how great and menacing an empire may appear to be, it is simply an actor in a play written by someone else. It plays out the role assigned to it by God on the revolving stage of world history. And then when its lines are over, it slinks off ignominiously into the wings. Great word, by the way. What that means is that there is unquestionably a shelf life to all oppressors and oppression in the world as we know it. Okay, it may not be an issue of world powers or kingdoms for us, although it may be. We're in a heightened political season, and you may find your heart just doing this between now and November 8th, and that may be what you need to hear. That may be the application point for you this morning of this particular statement. But it may be an issue of injustice that you experience in the workplace. It may be mistreatment that you experience in your very own family. It may be various forms of violence and abuse that you're a victim of. I have no idea what your story is. But what I do know is that the Bible teaches that everything will be set right in the end. That Jesus will return and make everything sad untrue. He will eradicate, he will do away with evil as we know it forever. And those who don't make the blood of Jesus their plea will not get away with their crimes. Evil will lose. Oppression will lose. Injustice and abuse will lose. Jesus and his goodness will win. Which is why, this is crazy to wrap your mind around and your heart around, which is why we don't have to take vengeance into our own hands as we plead for even our enemies to turn to Jesus Christ and his cross, which is incredibly hard to do. Right, let's not make a mockery of that and belittle it. It's a big deal. Not only that, not only do kingdoms come and kingdoms go, yet the kingdom of God shall endure forever. Secondly, you can find comfort in knowing that nothing in your life is beyond the care and control of God. Nothing. Not a single thing. Think about the animal Im imagery in this morning's passage. We're not talking about the sea monsters of chapter seven, right? We're talking about domestic barnyard animals, a ram and a goat. As one commentator puts it, this vision in chapter eight cuts our monsters down to size. I love that. Whether it's a health issue that you're dealing with or a marriage that's on life support or a financial crisis or a friendship in shambles and on and on we could go, that none of those things, none of them is gargantuan in the eyes of God. Not one single one of those things that you would put on that list. If God is in control of world powers and rulers, including Alexander the Great, he's most certainly in control of your life. Make no mistake about that. He hasn't lost control of the wheel in those unraveled moments. In fact, he's relentlessly committed to his glory and our good, no matter what. In fact, the Bible teaches that those unraveled moments, 1 Peter, prove our faith to be genuine. They weed out the pretenders from the believers. 
This is a very sobering quote to me. Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary whose husband, you may uh, know who this man is, very famous missionary, Jim Elliot. Uh, he was speared to death by an unreached tribe in Ecuador when their daughter was only 10 months old. Okay, wrap your mind around that, what it would be like to go through that, to try to share those types of things with your community group. I have a 10-year-old daughter. My husband was just speared to death on the mission field. This is what she said. She said, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Think about that. Slow down for just a second. Hit pause. Think about that statement. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. He longs to make you more like Jesus. He's in the relentless pursuit of conforming you to the image of his son, Romans chapter 8. I think the question for us is, do our longings match God's longings? Is that what we long for? To be conformed into the image of Christ. The difficult, painful moments in life not only prove our faith to be genuine, they actually increase our intimacy with God. I don't know about you, but I never find myself on my knees on the mountaintops. Rarely does that happen in my life. It's always in the valleys, in the, in the midst of the unraveled moments that I find myself most on my knees. I, I, I don't personally ever pray for hardship or pain. I think that's just theologically foolish and biblically unwarranted. But I will say this, I never cease to be amazed at how God shows up in the midst of those moments in my life. Maybe you can relate to that. I never cease to be amazed at how God draws me in and loves me well in the midst of those moments and seasons. In Trinitarian language, you could say it this way. God is our Abba Father who loves us with the intense love he has for Jesus Christ the Son. And Jesus is our good shepherd who laid down his life for you and I, the sheep. And the Holy Spirit is our comforter who sustains us in the darkest of valleys. If you're not a Christian, you come in this morning. My hope is that a strangely obscure passage like Daniel chapter 8 would draw you in. As you come face to face with Jesus, God truly manifests. The true temple who is desecrated for you, the true light who came to call you out of darkness, the true sacrifice who died so that you might live, so that you might be able to lay down your evidence before God and trust and plead on behalf of his blood. I would implore you to turn to him this morning and trust in him for salvation by faith alone, knowing that you'll never be alone, that in your darkest moment, you can then cry out to your Abba Father. In your darkest moment, you can listen to the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd leading you. In your darkest moment, you can experience and know the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and that's something I invite all of us in this room into, Christian and non-Christian alike. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to buy into three false narratives functionally. I would never theologically put this on paper as my worldview, but functionally, this is where my heart can go. One of three places. Let's see if maybe you can relate to any of these. Number one, it's very easy for me to become a functional deist where all of a sudden, though I don't theologically believe that God wound up the clock of human history and checked out on me, when everything seems to come unraveled, I do believe that he's in an alternate dimension, completely removed from me, that there's a ceiling on my prayers that just aren't hitting him. You ever been there? Or, or maybe you find yourself buying into the second false narrative, which is that God is sovereign, but he's not good, which 
potentially makes him nothing more than a cruel dictator of sorts. He's uh, up there uh, like a puppet master, just kind of moving the strings, but with no care or concern for where the story's going as it pertains to us. Or maybe you buy into the third false narrative, which is the opposite of number two, which is that God absolutely cares. He's just not in control of the story. He's up there in a heavenly straitjacket wishing he could do something. Kind of like you, whenever you encounter someone on the street who asks you for a little bit of money and all you have is a debit card, maybe that's your view of God functionally at times. That God's saying to you, I wish I could help. All I have is this debit card. And yet the Bible tells us that uh, this idea, even functionally, of believing in, in deism, this lie that God is far removed, can't be true because God actually entered into the story himself as one of its very characters in the person of Jesus. The, the, Daniel, the entire book, tells us that that second false narrative can't be true because God is in control of kings and kingdoms as he sits on the throne as the ultimate capital K king. And we know that the third narrative is not true, that he cares for us and loves us deeply because he died for us. And so I would implore you this morning to to sit in the coming moments as we prepare to take communion as a Christian in this room and, and to wrestle with which of those false narratives you're most inclined to buy into. And then sit with the truth of Daniel chapter eight and allow it to reorient your, your thoughts and your affections toward a God who deeply cares for you, who is in control of the story, and who has not checked out on you or human history at large. We are not alone. Christianity is a relationship with a God who walks with his people through every high and every low. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.